0: This is the Hack Your Wealth podcast, episode number five. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, finance friends, thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Today, I have invited an industry-recognized CFP, that's Certified Financial Planner. His name is Roger Ma, to come talk to us about things that we should think about as we optimize our retirement accounts. And this is something I plan to do regularly on the show, depending on the topic, to invite other experts who can share their wisdom and their insights and their experiences with us to teach us things that would be helpful for us to know about how we can uh, build our wealth more efficiently and effectively and take advantage of strategies to optimize our earning, saving, investing, and protecting. Remember the 4 by 4 FIRE framework, Earn, Save, Invest, Protect. So I plan to invite guests regularly to the show to share their insights with us on these things and tell me your feedback. Is this type of format helpful and valuable to you? Do you want to hear from other voices in the industry? And what kinds of topics would be most valuable to you for me to pull in guests to share their insights with us? All right. As for today's episode, I talk with Roger about his career path from investment banker to financial advisor and ask his insights on the common mistakes that working professionals even and even high earners make when it comes to their retirement accounts. We also talk a little bit about What are the moments in life when there may be special opportunities to optimize your retirement accounts? And what folks who are working toward FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early, should be thinking about in terms of their why, more so than their how. We'll also talk a little bit at the end about why Roger chose to join the AARP at age 35. So definitely encourage you to tune in. It's going to be an interesting interview. One thing I wanted to caveat though, I had to do this interview outside of my normal small recording studio. So I did not have access to my normal good microphone. I had to use uh, wired earbuds. So the quality, the audio quality on my side isn't the best. You can definitely still understand everything, but you know, wanted to let you know in advance that's the reason why the audio quality is gonna dip here in a second. And definitely apologize for that. Whenever I'm able to record interviews in my small studio, the audio quality, at least on my side, Uh, Tends to be much better. The calls are often done via Skype, and so the other side uh, will often sound more like a telephone. Uh, like the person on the other end of a telephone, and that's okay. All the content is definitely understandable, uh, but in cases where I'm not able to do the interview in my studio because I have to be uh, remote or away, I will often have to do it just using wired earbuds, and in those situations, the audio quality can sometimes uh, be not as good. But hopefully, uh, it doesn't detract from the content. The real value and importance of uh, the interview is in the content itself. So I hope you get a lot of value from that. All right, last thing before we jump in, I want to invite you, as always, to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group, which you can access at hackyourwealth.com slash FB. It's a way for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I am in there every single day responding to questions and comments, and it's a place where group members can ask questions about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career advice, or just any questions that are on your mind about personal finance-related matters or even career matters. It's a great group of people, really friendly folks who are engaged and helpful and would definitely encourage you to join us. We would love to have you there. All right, now time for today's subscriber review. Today's review comes from Shell Frobey, who writes, No-nonsense wealth building. I've followed the Hack Your Wealth blog for a few years and was excited to see Andrew launch this podcast so I can listen on the go. He describes strategies for building wealth with a direct, simple-to-digest approach. He's smart, articulate, and cuts through the jargon. To tell you what you need to know to be more educated about wealth building for those who have some basics under their belt, I had tried a bunch of other podcasts on the topic, but I couldn't stomach their high and mighty egos. Andrew wants to educate. Highly recommend. Well, thank you, Shelfroby, for the nice words. Uh, I am a little bit embarrassed to read them out loud to myself, but I really appreciate. Uh, The kind words and you're tuning into the podcast and getting value uh, from the podcast. And to all other listeners out there, I do encourage you to consider writing a review for the podcast if you are enjoying it. It does help the podcast a lot, helps other people find it uh, who are looking for this type of content. So thank you so much. Now on with the show. All right, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. My guest today is Roger Ma. He is a former investment banker, certified financial planner, founder of his own financial planning practice, and he's currently writing a career and personal finance book scheduled for release next spring. He's a guest contributor to Forbes.com and TheStreet.com and was selected as one of Investment News' 40 Under 40 in financial planning and one of Investopedia's top 100 most influential financial advisors. I invited Roger to come on the podcast today and to talk to us about Retirement account strategies, Roger. So great to have you join us here today. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Uh, I would love to, you know, first start out before we kind of jump into the uh, the nuts and bolts. Just learning a little bit about you and your background. What motivated you to become a financial advisor uh, in the first place? And you know, mm-hmm. what do you what do you specialize in now?
1: Uh huh. Yeah. So my background is in investment banking. I spent uh, seven grueling years. Uh, in the industry. And, you know, during that time, I wasn't so much interested in in the corporate part of finance, but started to get interested in the the personal finance aspects. But I I think for a lot of the years, because I was working so much, I I didn't really have time to think about personal finance. And honestly, I think to some extent, it intimidated me. So I kind of it to the wayside and i and i i used to ascribe to the formula that you know all i had to do was work hard you know get a good job keep getting promoted and kind of like the the financial stability financial independence stuff would would take care of itself and it wasn't until uh an unexpected layoff uh in 2012 that i really had to start thinking about uh, personal finance and how it related to me um and, and some of the basics like How much what was my net worth and what did that mean in terms of um, how much I spent or how much I could spend and what types of jobs I could take? Did I have to take another investment banking job or could I take a a, a big pay cut? And so I think that's where I really started to get um, serious about learning more about personal finance and and starting to gradually see um, the power that. Getting a hold of your finances had uh, on your entire life, and so that was kind of a gradual process. Where I started writing about uh, personal finance, and then I I started realizing, oh, this stuff is a lot of fun, and and that kind of led me uh, on the path to get my my CFP designation, and then ultimately uh, to start my own
0: firm. Uh, what what was the motivation, do you think, to make the transition from investment banking to personal finance? I know that you know isn't. Uh, an especially common path was there a moment mm-hmm. or time when you realized like this is actually I want to take my career down this direction instead
1: yeah I, you know i, I, I personal finance I, I mean this stuff stressed me out for for the longest time and it always seemed like when i was talking to people about investing in personal finance that everyone else had it together you know i can remember coworkers You know, telling me, "Oh my God, Roger, I, I, I made so much money in leveraged ETFs." And I would think to myself, "What the heck is a leveraged ETF? Like, what the heck is going on here?" And, you know, I I remember another vivid uh, situation where I just started in, in my job in finance, and you know, signed up for healthcare and started thinking about this thing called a 401k. And I had no idea where to start in terms of investing, and so I I, I stared blankly at my twenty five different choices for a number of months, uh, and, and I finally just gave up and was like, you know what, I'm just going to put my money equally into four funds that sound good and kind of mm-hmm. leave it from there. So it kind of stressed me out for a long time, and I think educating myself and 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 realizing the the burden lifted off my shoulder by. By empowering myself, um, I felt was awesome. And I wanted to be able to um, help others uh, that felt the same way I had about finance. So that's kind of what motivated me uh, to get into the industry.
0: Gotcha. Have you found that uh, even amongst, you know, well-educated professional office working uh, population that there is, uh, you know, a, a decent lack of understanding or confusion about Um, you know, certain personal finance issues and retirement saving and things like that. Has that been a common theme in your practice that you found? Totally.
1: Yeah. So I specialize in uh, young couples, typically in their late 20s, early to to late 30s. Typically, they are newly engaged, married or wanting to have a a baby or uh, buy an apartment. And they might not have really thought about personal finance in the past. And it's it's not surprising. I mean, we learn about all these different subjects, social studies, math, calculus. Uh, we don't ever learn about how to manage our money or how money impacts the rest of our life in high school, college, or, or thereafter. So it's not surprising that people um, don't have a handle on, oh, you know what is a 401k, or what are the difference between tax deferred versus uh, a Roth 401k? It's just you know after you you work a long week, um, I, I don't think a lot of people will think. Well, let me let me start reading up on 401k <laughs> investing strategies. It's just not something <laughs> to think about. You're like, I want to kick back, I want to go hang out, you know, at the local restaurant borrow with my friends, uh, and have some downtime.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. It's something actually I've been thinking about. A decent amount recently as well, because I I have a uh, a young baby at home. She's a year and a half mm-hmm. or so, and uh, you know I'm well aware that in school you don't really learn these things. But once you become an adult, like bam, like you suddenly need to start adulting. Uh, do you do you have any have any thoughts like why? Like everybody realizes it's important. Like why doesn't our education accommodate that type of uh, education? Yeah, that's a <sighs> that's a good question I I have no idea I think there's I think
1: there's more and more states that are requiring some um, personal finance education at the high school level but there might just be seven to ten out of the 50 that are requiring that and the the type of education that they're requiring could be uh, in, in a lot of different forms it might just be you know a six session very basic um class so I, I just I don't, I don't know why it doesn't exist in the at the high school or college level but I think those that are proactive about learning about it um, even in college or, or in your early
0: career it can have a huge difference uh, on the trajectory of your life definitely it's one of the things that I uh, I semi regret that I just didn't get an earlier head start getting smart even though I didn't have. Mm-hmm. That again. It just takes, there's a, uh, a, the learning curve is fairly long to ramp up Uh and really understand so that by the time you have money, like you just know what to do rather than starting to learn when you start to have money, which then delays everything. And so Mm -hmm. I imagine you see this a lot in folks that you advise. And so I'm curious when it comes to saving for retirement, which is like, Mm -hmm. I think important for anyone, particularly for probably the young couples that you advise uh, that are really starting to think about this once they... Uh, get married, and especially once they have children, what are like common mistakes or missed opportunities that you see working professionals, even high earners make when it comes to preparing for their retirement uh, through saving and investing and really optimizing their retirement accounts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think one of the um, I think the first mistake that I see is a mistake that I've made myself in in thinking that you know, if you work hard and just continue to make a, a, a high salary and continue to progress, that the the financial stability, financial independence, retirement will kind of take care of itself, and you don't really have to worry about it. And so um, just not being engaged with either not contributing to your 401k, uh, not contributing the max or, or putting it just into random funds, I think, is um, one common uh, mistake that I see. I think another common kind of mistake is just um, is um, assuming that if you put your money in a lot of different funds that you're uh, well diversified. Um, a third uh, mistake I see is that some companies will match um, their employee contributions in the form of company stock. Uh, and, and some employees will, will just simply keep uh, that match in their company stock rather than putting it in a, a more diversified fund. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I work a lot with people on how to um, create a investment strategy for retirement that they'll be able to manage themselves moving forward. Um, but the way that I frame it to them, I, I you know, I, I think retirement is, is kind of a, a, a stupid concept. Um, and, when I was doing research, I'm in the process of writing and and publishing a book. And when I was in the process of researching retirement, uh, I started reading about some of the old history. And, you know, I I think in the 1800s, late 1800s, a lot of people just worked uh, until they passed away. There wasn't this concept of retirement. And then uh, in in around the 1890s, uh, this chancellor in Germany, uh, was wanting to get older, less productive people out of the workforce uh, in favor of younger people. You can imagine that back in the late 1800s, work was much more manual. You're, you're outside. It's very physical. So um, a 70-year-old would not be as productive as a 20-year-old. I mean, even me at nearing 40, I probably wouldn't be able to, to kick it with the 20-year-olds. And so I think they're trying to find a way to – Get that, get those uh, people out, and, and get the younger people in. Um, but the thing is, like, even when you did retire, retirement didn't really last that long. So I think only in you know the, the mid 1900s, late 1900s, have life expectancies gone up. Retirement standard retirement age has stayed around you know sixty five, sixty seven, and now we have this expanding um, length of time that we know is retirement where. You know, we're taught that it's going to be this awesome time where we do nothing but sit on the beach uh, or play golf, and it's just amazing. And and that doesn't really fit with uh, me or a lot of a lot of people that I advise, a lot of people that are in uh, hardworking, driven careers. It's not natural, and I just don't think it's going to happen that. You know, you 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 work sixty to seventy hours a day, and one day you say, "Oh yeah, I stop," and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna love doing nothing. It's just not, um, it's not natural. And um, uh, I was in Seattle a couple months ago, talking to this guy that had recently retired. I think he had retired a year before, uh, and he started driving Uber. And I asked him why why he started doing that. He said, "You know, it's just I just got bored. I was doing nothing. I was watching TV, and I just felt myself." wasting away so now what i do is i drive um four hours a day i don't really need the money but i do it for the engagement and i think that you know you think about those dynamics and how easy uh it is now to start a business work on your own and things like that i, I think a lot more people uh will be working in their their 60s 70s and trying to find work uh that they want to do rather than uh, retiring completely
0: sure for sure you mentioned uh, um that uh, one of the mistakes is that people will sort of just put their money in random funds or think that if they put it in a few funds and they're diversified if that's the wrong way to do it what's the right way to do it
1: I think it depends I think it depends on um, the, the type of accounts that you want you you have if you just have a, a 401k that's one thing I think it depends on where you are in your investing career did you just get out of school you just K, or you have uh, a Roth account outside of the four hundred and one K, and a taxable account as well. I kind of break it down um, for my clients into three different structures, and it kind of depends uh, on uh, number of funds and um, complexity as well. So uh, I think the easiest uh, investment structure is having simply a target date fund, and that could be you know you've seen this with Fidelity Schwab Vanguard. It's some variation of uh, some date target retirement fund, so like the twenty fifty retirement uh, target retirement fund, which will have a mix of probably three or four different funds and be be um, be allocated to some percentage of stocks and bonds based on that target retirement fund. That fund will take care of ongoing rebalancing, and then as you get closer to Whatever retirement date you chose, it will make sure to decrease the amount of stocks you have and increase the amount of bonds, thus um, uh, decreasing the the risk of the variation in your returns from year to year. And so I think that's the simplest way to get started and still have a well-diversified uh, portfolio. And I think a target date fund uh, is great for someone that is simply starting out uh, and just has a uh, – pre-tax or Roth 401k and no other accounts. The second structure I talk about is the three funds uh, portfolio. And I, I know the, the Bogle heads talk about this a lot. It's it's having a total uh, domestic stock funds, total international funds and a total bond fund. And the way that I talk about it is you might have just money in your 401k or you might have multiple different accounts, whether it's a 401k and a taxable account in this second structure Use the same three funds, same allocation in your 401k and your, let's say it's your taxable accounts. Um, and then the third structure I talk about is a variation of that three fund portfolio, where I call it the asset located portfolio, where you're using the same three or four funds to to get whatever asset allocation you're trying to target. But you may not have the same asset allocation, in your 401k as your taxable account, because you know some investments are more efficient in a taxable account than others, and that's where, um, you know, you might have a lot of your total stock or total international stock market funds in your taxable account, and put more of your bond funds um, in your 401k. And so that's kind of how I break it down in terms of easiest is just using one funds, um, and you don't have to do any of the rebalancing. Um, the three fund portfolio. You're expanding it to three funds, but you have the same asset allocation in each account, so it's pretty easy to remember. And then the most complex is um, using a three or four fund portfolio, but having different allocations uh, in each of your accounts. So it's super tax efficient, but it's going to take you a little more brain damage to, you know, rebalance on an ongoing basis. And so I, I talk to people. I-, I say I tell people that you're trying to balance efficiency and simplicity. So the most simple um, investment strategy, the target date fund, it's going to cost a little more, uh, which it's set and forget it. The asset located fund, you're using more uh, funds, and it, you're probably having a rebalance in a spreadsheet or trying to figure out oh, how, much, how much more uh, total stock market do I need. But it's the most tax efficient and you're paying the least amount of fees. And I think um, when, when people are trying to think about what strategy is right for them, they have to be honest about, well, how much do they like this stuff or how much do they wanna be involved in the day to day? And how important is it for them to know that they have the most efficient portfolio or they're paying the least amount of cost?
0: That's really good advice. And I like that three structures, kind of like depending on how comfortable you feel uh, being active in managing your portfolio. Uh, one question I had is like, what is the actual expense ratio diff between a target date versus like doing the three fund portfolio, like the bogleheads advice? Yeah,
1: I'd say um, I'd say target date fund is typically under twenty basis points. So about I, I think Vanguard's is point one five or point one six, and then if you do the three fund portfolio, you're getting it down to about point oh eight percent.
0: Got it. So it's like double. That's kind of the rough. Shortcut mental shortcut to think about it it's about double, but you know you talk about eight versus fifteen basis points
1: we're really talking about small numbers here,
0: yeah um, if you for the the uh, investor who wants to do the third bucket, so they want to be uh-huh. tax efficient but they want to do mm-hmm. the and they want to do the three fund portfolio, uh, what are best practices that you would advise for making sure that you Uh, rebalance regularly, smartly, like, is there a, I don't know, is there a a mental checklist that you uh, have or that you would suggest to somebody who wants to take that approach to make sure they're not just um, silently letting their portfolio drift out of uh, proportion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that in terms of rebalancing, I don't don't think there's a one size fits all. I think you could either do it time-based, whether it's annually, semi-annually, or quarterly, or you could do it value-based and say that, okay, my target asset allocation is 90% stocks and 10% bonds. If uh, that proportion drifts more than 5%, so if it drifts to 95.5% or something like that, that's what I need to to rebalance. And again, I I think the value-based approach is a little more hands-on. It might require you uh, to look at your portfolio more. Um, if you're someone that wants to do that asset like, a- asset located portfolio, uh, you might be someone that naturally wants to look at your portfolio, or, like is into getting to that efficiency. But you know, I, I think that um, it- it's fine to rebalance quarterly or, or semi annually, and uh, especially for for those that. Maybe followers of, of your your site and podcast, they might still be in accumulation phase. So you might read a lot of articles say, well, a lot of times you they talk about selling, but you don't really have to sell if you're in accumulation phase. You just change the proportion of how much you're buying of the stock portfolio versus the bond portfolio. So if you're over-indexed in the stock portfolio, uh, you just buy more of the bond portfolio and less of the stock portfolio on an ongoing basis till you're back into sync with your target asset allocation. So I think that's the big thing that um, you don't have to sell. And if you do sell, it might make sense, if you need to sell, to to first try to sell or transfer funds within um, a tax advantage account like a pre-tax 401k or a Roth 401k or an IRA, which does not have immediate tax implications. If you're looking to rebalance in a taxable account, you might have immediate uh, tax implications in terms of having to pay capital gains.
0: Got it. Yeah, it's good advice. Do you? Um, I haven't come across this, but I was curious: are there like alert notification services or features that can alert you when your portfolio drifts out of uh, you know outside boundaries that you predefine?
1: Not that I know of for the consumer.
0: I yeah. think I think
1: some advisors may have uh some software that does that for them, but for consumers I haven't seen anything like that. Got it. That seems like it would be useful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Uh okay, cool. So uh you're right that most of the folks who are going to be listening to this uh podcast and who follow hack your wealth are more in the accumulation phase. And so, you know, they're kind of clocking and earning a good salary and so there's not maybe a whole lot of um uh, variance that they uh, might do on a you know year to year basis when it comes to optimizing the retirement accounts, they'll just contribute, they'll maybe rebalance quarterly or annually. But sometimes there will be these milestones in a, in some in you know in one's life where there is a special opportunity to optimize a retirement account. And the, I guess the way I've thought about this in the past is like when your income takes a sudden drop or when you have a life event that happens. Uh, there may be a special opportunity to do some special optimization. And I was curious, uh, what are, from your perspective, uh, what are the milestones that you would encourage folks to keep in mind so that when they come, they can remember to uh, do some retirement account optimization? And more importantly, what exact steps should the person do in that situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think any time that someone is earning a high income and they enter a year where they're expecting to make significantly less money, whether it's because they decide to uh, pursue a graduate degree, they decide to take a break from work, what have you. Um, I think that's a great opportunity to take a look at your portfolio to see, you know, what, ta- what tax bracket do I think I'm going to be in uh, for that particular year? And is there an opportunity to convert some of my uh, pre tax retirement monies into Roth monies uh, to pay either a, a low tax rate or no tax rate. And if you do have earned income in that year for that low tax uh, bracket year, does it make sense if I've been contributing all along uh, on a pre tax basis uh, to actually contribute to my retirement account uh, on a Roth basis? Uh, because that, the, the, the immediate cost to me in terms of having to pay taxes today will be much less because I'm in a lower tax bracket versus when I was making uh, more money. And then uh, I think the third thing is, again, in looking at the tax brackets that, um, you know, I I think often people think about capital gains rate in the 15 to 20%. uh, But if you are in a very low tax bracket, there are situations where you might pay 0% uh, capital gains, um, for increases in your taxable account. And so, again, if you are in any of those situations, it may be interesting to look at uh, holdings that you have in your taxable account that have gained in value uh, and to actually sell those, uh, get the free 0% capital gains and rebuy them back. So then you've effectively, uh, I think people call it like stepped up your base without having to pay any
0: taxes. And no wash sale uh, problems in that scenario, right? So wash sale only uh,
1: occurs if you're um, selling at a loss. In this case, you're selling at a gain, so you could buy it back immediately.
0: Yeah, that's one of the beautiful things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just so that uh, a listener or a reader who is um, uh, not intricately familiar with the exact steps... Could you, uh, if you were explaining this to somebody who had never heard the strategy, but they understand it conceptually, what are the exact steps that they should be doing to to implement this? Let's say so um, uh, last year, you know, you have a client who was making high salary and then this year they go to grad school. So salary goes to zero uh, and Uh they they want to take advantage of exactly what you just said. How should they be doing the actual calculation to make sure that they're optimizing every penny?
1: Yeah, so I I think in those cases, it might make sense to go to an accountant just to verify. But one of the ways to to think about it is um, your filing status, looking at um, whether you're taking the standard deduction or the itemizing deduction standard is, I believe, like a little over 12,000 for single filers and 24,000 for for married filers. So let's say that you have Uh, 12,000. Let's just keep it simple. And just take advantage of the, the standard deduction. Um, and if you're making no other income, uh, you might be able to convert twelve thousand of money in your pre-tax account to Roth for free. Uh, and the way that you would do that is you could go to your whoever your provider your your retirement provider is, um, and there should be a button that's uh, one of the options is you know convert money to uh, roth ira and then you can specify how much money to convert and it will take uh, a couple days to uh t- to execute
0: and then on top of that they still get uh, a, a capital gain step up they could take advantage of that and so what should they do like what are the steps that they should do uh in a more granular way there
1: you know for the the capital gains one i to be honest, I often check with an accountant myself when I'm with clients just to, uh, just to make sure. Yeah. So I would have, I would have uh, your listeners uh, maybe verify with an accountant what the, uh, what the actual limit is.
0: Sure. Okay, cool. Are there other milestones that are noteworthy that folks should keep in mind where there is maybe a special opportunity to optimize? I don't think
1: so. I, I think drops in income or significant drops in income are um, key points. Um, you know, it, it's so interesting, though, that w- when you do have a drop in income, sometimes those are the times where you may not have the money to be able to take advantage uh, of, a, of a particular opportunity. I can, I can remember advising some friends when they went to grad school to exactly what we just talked about. Oh my God! You got to convert your your pre-tax 401k into a Roth. Just do it for me, so I could live vicariously through you. Um, uh, and so I think re- being aware is one thing, remembering to do it, and then potentially having the money to be able to make that six thousand dollar contribution to a Roth is is important as well. Um, and so I think the 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 situations you mentioned are are probably the key ones. Just to drop in income. Um, But I think it it, it makes sense to just think about your strategy anytime you have some key milestone, whether it's getting engaged, getting married, thinking about or having a a baby, um, buying a house. These are times where uh, I think it does make sense to uh, revisit your your particular strategy and make sure you're on track.
0: That's interesting. You mentioned getting married. I guess um, if you were getting married, a bunch of the thresholds double. So in theory, if, you're, if your income stayed the same and you had, I don't know, like a stay at home spouse, might there yep. be some opportunities there to like fill up more uh, given the thresholds all increase? Yeah, there, there could be some opportunities there. I, I think from,
1: you know, oftentimes for, for the engaged and married standpoint, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of the value actually is just organizing uh, and making sure that each of the partners Uh, is on the same page. They've probably been um, managing their finances very individually, just like accumulating random accounts. And so I think um, once they get married, it gives them an opportunity to say like, hey, what the heck do we even have available? Hey, what was that random Chase count over there for? Should we you know, combine this into one joint account? And so I think it gives them opportunity to... um, Simplify their situation, maybe combine their situation, and I think that has um, downstream effects too for you know, estate planning and other things like that. Because you know, uh, if someone were to pass away, um, the other partner isn't left with, oh wait, what were all those twenty random accounts uh, that we had again? I, I can't even remember. No, it's streamlined, and it's we have one joint account, uh, and maybe we've already set it up. Um, so that's joint one joint account. We, ha- we have our beneficiaries on our retirement accounts, um, and, and our investment account is joint, so it, it makes it very clean.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. Good advice. Um, okay. So in the end of 2017, there was a big tax change that, uh, that was you know, pushed out by Congress, signed into law by the President, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It was a very consequential tax reform bill, and most of it went into effect in 2018.
1: Mm-hmm. Are, there,
0: are there any important or notable strategies that retirement account holders should be aware of or thinking about to take advantage of following um, the the tax reform bill that came out? Honestly, there there hasn't been any change to how I work with clients
1: on retirement. I think it's it's continuing to um, use low cost passive investing, try to be as tax efficient as possible. And then focusing on tax diversification as well. And so not concentrating all your money in a pre-tax account, but making sure that we're being deliberate about trying to get money in Roth as well and taxable. And um, a lot of times uh, to get money in the Roth, uh, we're, we're relying on either mega backdoor Roth strategies or regular backdoor Roth strategies. I think the other, you know, one of the biggest things that that changed was the ten thousand dollar cap on state, local, and property taxes. So that has an impact on, you know, how many people actually itemize deductions. A lot more people uh, will take the standard deduction, even if, you know, if you're in a low cost of living area and you you do have a mortgage, you might still actually be um, using the standard deduction. And I think one of the big things that I've advised people on is in the past, you might just assume, oh, I'm, I'm donating to charity, this is gonna give me a tax write-off. But it only gives you a tax write-off if you uh, itemize deductions. And so uh, when I do see a client that itemized, itemizes deductions, one of the cool strategies that I have them think about uh, is using a donor-advised fund. And that allows people to uh, separate uh, getting a tax deduction for a donation versus uh, the timing of when they actually have to distribute that money. And so if they let's say that they donate five thousand dollars today, a donor advised fund allows them to get that five thousand dollar tax deduction today. uh, But then they could decide to, you know, throw off fifty dollars here, fifty dollars next year to X, Y, Z charity uh, and meanwhile, the money in that donor-advised fund is invested and hopefully growing. Uh, and I think the the best part of the donor-advised fund is uh, you can donate cash or you could donate appreciated securities. And so uh, donating appreciated securities in your taxable account, uh, the regular mechanic would be that you might sell that stock, pay capital gains, and then donate some lesser amount. But with the donor-advised fund, you could donate the the appreciated stock directly and get the tax deduction on that full amount. and So that's one of those things that I look for um, that's changed, especially for the, the standard versus itemized, that people assume that the charitable deduction will, will be uh, a tax benefit. Um, but it, it, it isn't always now because more and more people are taking the standard deduction.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And I guess the in that case where you donated appreciated securities, the uh, the fund or the ultimately the charity, uh, they don't pay capital gains taxes either, right? They get it's like uh, stepped up in basis at that point. So what happens is you will um, you'll
1: you'll donate the appreciated securities to a donor advised fund. And Fidelity has one, Vanguard has one. Actually, Fidelity I really like because the minimum is lower; it's five thousand, and then allows you to donate in increments of fifty dollars. I think Vanguard is still a $25,000 um, initial minimum, and then their minimum donation increments is $500. And so the way that it would work is, you know, let's say you donate $5,000 of uh, whatever XYZ stock that's appreciated to uh, the Donor Advised Fund. The donor Advised Fund then sells it and says, okay, Andrew, what kind of uh, fund would you like to put this in while you're waiting to donate it? And they'll give you some options that uh, I think look like target date fund-esque. Um, and then
0: whenever you want, you can start to deploy that money uh, to whatever charity that, that you'd like. I see. So you get to specify the charity. doesn't matter what it is. could be as small or as large as you uh, please.
1: I think as, as long as it's
0: a qualified 501c3, yeah. Sure. I see. And so to access these donor advised funds, you would do this typically through uh, your standard brokerages like a Fidelity or a Vanguard?
1: Yeah. So I don't know if every brokerage has a a donor advised fund. I know uh, Fidelity and Vanguard are some of the larger ones and and Fidelity, I think, is one of the most user friendly just because uh, of the lower minimums. I see.
0: Okay, cool. Do you see any upcoming legislation on the horizon that could bubble up that we should be paying attention to that could change important rules when it comes to uh, retirement accounts?
1: You know, I'll be honest, I haven't been I haven't been the best about keeping track. I I thought I saw something on raising the age of uh, required minimum distributions. You know, I think there's been some other stuff here and there, but it didn't seem like it was um, getting into the serious territory. So I kind of tuned it out,
0: honestly. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Okay. So a bunch of my listeners and readers are folks who are, you know, aspiring to FIRE. There's this whole movement around FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early, Mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, basically retiring before your traditional retirement age of 65. So that might be in your 50s or 40s or even 30s. And in some really extreme cases, even in your 20s, Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do you have any recommendations for ways that folks who have early retirement in mind, what they should be thinking about uh, in terms of saving and investing, how they should be thinking differently from, say, somebody who simply plans to retire uh, at your typical, you know, 65?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think
0: that anybody on the the FIRE movement has probably
1: followed and and knows a lot of the, the different strategies. Um And, you know, I, I think what I've seen from the fire movement is that um, w- when someone gets on the, the fire path, they're like, all right, I got my number. Here's my burn rate multiplied by 25. I just got to reach that and then I can leave. Um, but I, I think what happens is on that path to getting 25 times your burn rate or whether you know, whatever you're using, the 4% rule or 3% rule. Um, I think something changes in, in, in their mentality. I think, well, you know, I don't – my job isn't as bad as uh, I thought it was. It actually is quite good. I don't know if I want to retire. And, and what I've seen from a lot of the more vocal uh, fire proponents is that they, they end up not really leaving their job. Or if they do, they mm. get another um, you know, a, a position that pays. Uh, and so they're not really – withdrawing money at all and so mm-hmm. I think what I'd ask myself if, if I am if you are on the path is um, why are you on the path and what is fire going to allow you to do once you get to the end of the rainbow that you can't do now
0: mm-hmm. uh, and a
1: lot of the times I feel like it's 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 not much and um, I, I sometimes feel like people use fire as a risk-averse way to make a job change mm-hmm. uh, and what I want to tell them is you don't have to wait so long uh to be able to make that change you don't you don't i don't think you need that much money um to to make a job change or or, or make a, a big change uh in your life and so yeah i i would i would tell listeners to just get clear on why they're on the path what fire is going to get for them and what is life going to look like um when they actually fire
0: yeah yeah, there's definitely a mindset thing that is important to get clear on your why for sure. So, uh, definitely something to think about. One thing I sometimes think about in particular, though, is that um, if you have gotten clear in your head and you know that there is a, um, uh, you know, you want to retire early, whether you should think about putting money in a tax advantaged versus a taxable regular taxable account in a different way, insofar as a tax advantaged account typically is, you know, going to stay locked up until you're about 59 mm-hmm. and a half. Whereas uh-huh. investing in a taxable account, you know, you may not get any tax breaks, but is more flexible in terms of your ability to access it. And so, um, the, I think the, the, the kind of traditionally prudent investor will, you know, max out their 401k every year, maybe even max out a backdoor, uh, an mm-hmm. after-tax IRA to do a backdoor IRA, and then maybe they won't have enough, a ton left over for much, or maybe they will, I don't know. Um, But it's kind of like, you can develop this kind of reflex of just max it out, max it out. And they're all tax Mm -hmm. advantage, and they're all locked up till you're 60. Uh, Is there any different way of thinking that you would uh, advise if you already had it clear that you were going to retire early with regard to uh, how you allocate your money in this way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think whether you're, thinking about retiring early or not, that um, I would be cautious about putting all your money into a a pre-tax retirement account. I've seen a lot of clients uh, in their 60s uh, and approaching the RMD age of seven and a half only have uh, money in a pre-tax account. And then we start looking at what the RMDs are going to be. their social security is going to be taxable. They might have some other fixed income as well. Um, and while they were accumulating and put this money in, they thought, oh, well, my tax rate is going to be lower in retirement. And with these requirement distributions and other fixed income, it gives you much less control over uh, being able to control your tax bracket in retirement. And so, you know, I, as an ideal metric, I say it would be great to target a third, a third, a third in each bucket, a third in pre-tax, a third in taxable, and a third in Roth. I know that's not often um, realistic just because most people don't either have uh, the cash flow or the tools in terms of the mega backdoor Roth or regular backdoor Roth to be able to get to that a third, a third, a third. But I I think that type of tax diversification gives you more options whether you retire at 40 uh, or decide to retire at 60. And I think if someone is really set on uh, retiring at at 40, not working at all and and really just not making money and doing whatever, um, I think that presents an opportunity to what we discussed before in terms of uh, gradually converting those pre-tax monies to Roth monies, to essentially turn them into tax-free monies. (laughs) I think there's other ways to get the money out of that 401k if you want to do these substantially equal periodic payments um and so I, I, yeah I, I think that it's it's always good to target uh, to have some amount of tax diversification or have money in each of the different uh tax buckets and if you can um uh, another account that my clients and I have been talking about recently is the health savings account and using that as another stealth retirement vehicle, because it's the only triple tax free account available. It's even better than the Roth. I, I tell people I would, uh, I would marry the HSA if I could, I don't have one myself, but I, you know, I, I live vicariously through others and, and seeing them uh, use that as uh, another uh, vehicle that they can use for their future healthcare expenses.
0: For sure, yeah. And like healthcare is one of those things that I think people who are young and healthy may take for granted, but when you're old, you need to start thinking about. So that triple tax advantage, which uh, just means, you know, tax free in, tax free growth, and tax free out when it's for qualified healthcare expenses, can really help for sure. Um, okay, I think those are pretty much all the um, retirement-related questions I have. Where can people find out more about you, what you do, what you're all about?
1: Yep, they can go to my site at lifelaidout.com, l-i-f-e-l-a-i-d-o-u-t.com.
0: Uh, my Twitter handle is life laid out. Cool. And uh, you're writing a book right now about career uh, uh, career development and investing. Tell us what that's going to be about. I know it's coming out in the spring.
1: Yep, it's uh, we're we're still targeting a day, but I think it should be April 2020. It's about how to find a job you like and then teach you the financial strategies to actually make that path a reality. And, um, you know, it's we hear a lot of these myths about what good jobs are. You know, I used to think that uh, good jobs were very high paying jobs. You work for a prestigious uh, company uh, and that didn't prove true to my life. And then you, you have other myths where people say, you know, just do what you love. Uh, but doing what you love may not pay the bills. So how do you reconcile, uh, those two thoughts? And that's what I try to do in the book.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, definitely. I, I hope folks check it out. Uh, one, um, uh, one thing I, I actually, I was reading in, in prepping for this interview. I was reading some of your past articles. And one thing that caught my eye, I'd love to actually, I just remembered, I I wanted to ask this and I uh, forgot to do it earlier, but one thing I, uh, that caught my eye, I thought was super interesting is that, um, you joined the AARP a few years ago, which is (laughs) uh, uncommon for somebody who's, uh, you you know, millennial ish, uh, professional. What were, what was your rationale thinking? Um, and, uh, what does that, what does it do for you? Do you recommend it, et cetera?
1: Yeah. I, you know, it, it, I was booking a hotel. Uh, I was booking book a Hilton hotel to Houston, and I used a standard rate. You know, you could use advance rates. You see all those different things. And one day, I, you know, I saw the AARP rate, and I was just curious. And I thought, well, how is that different than the HR uh, the Hilton Honors rate that I'm paying? I noticed that it was $16 cheaper, or something like that, uh, a night. I thought, well, you know. I- can I join AARP? And I started doing uh, some online searches and, and figured out that even though I thought that I couldn't join AARP until I was 50, there is really no age requirement. And uh, it's super cheap. It's $16 a year. And you can add uh, another person that's in your household. So when I joined AARP, I surprised my wife and said, hey, Jen, surprise, you're now a member of AARP. Too. <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're part of the cool kids. And so I think hotel uh, discounts is uh, the big one in um, Manhattan. You also get discounts well, actually uh, across the country, but I think especially in Manhattan, it might be uh, in other big cities might be more worthwhile. You get uh, discounts, uh, movie tickets at Regal cinemas. And so tickets in New York are 18 to $20. I think I was getting movie tickets for 10 to $12 through this discount. And then there's some discounted, I think restaurants, uh, car rental services as well. The ones I've used mostly are, are just the the movie deal and the um, and the hotel deal. But that's it's already paid for itself
0: for sure. Do you get uh, quizzical looks when you flash your ARP card at check-in? You know
1: they actually haven't asked for it. I, I've been actually I've been disappointed. I wanted to <laughs> be able to flash it and have them think for the rest of the day. What the heck is going on? <laughs>
0: that's fine okay so you you recommend it then if for nothing else then lower hotel costs
1: yeah I think if you know take a look for yourself there's there's a number of different hotel chains that are available um, and see one if you stay at those hotel chains and then two what rate you get now whether through um, a preferred member rate or a corporate discount and then compare it to the AARP rate and see if there would actually be a savings for you that's There was savings for me, but there might not be savings for
0: everyone. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Good advice. All right, uh, Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Really good advice and best of luck on your book coming out. And uh, everybody check out Roger's book. It'll be a good one. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Take care. Alright, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Roger Ma. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. And if you could help me out, please take 30 seconds to go to iTunes and leave a podcast review for me. It does help to support this podcast and I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. As always, I will leave a link to that in the show notes so you can write a review directly on your device or your laptop, whatever's most convenient for you. And if you don't use iTunes, you could certainly write a review on Spotify as well. That also helps. But iTunes is definitely where the bulk of listeners are at. So would most appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes. And again, each week on the show, whenever there's a new review, I will call out a subscriber review and thank them personally for posting. So please take a minute to leave a review for the podcast. And I would love to thank you personally on the show on the air to my audience. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. And we will see you next time thanks for listening to the hack your wealth podcast with andrew chen if you like the show please leave us a review on itunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content